0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence.
1: Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, Broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between my cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. And I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches, and mountains, and fly fishing, and sports, and reading, and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet award-winning Charlotte writer Kathleen Birkenshaw, author of The Last Cherry Blossom, a particularly relevant book in the 75th year from when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. This is a story that offers young readers insight into the Japanese culture, mindset, and daily life during World War II before the atomic bomb was dropped. It's based on Kathleen's mother's firsthand experience as a Hiroshima survivor and hopes to warn readers of the immense damage nuclear war can bring or reminding us that the enemy in war is often not so different from ourselves. In 2018, Book Riot named the book one of 30 fascinating historical fiction books for middle school readers. Kathleen starts the show with a reading from the first chapter of the book where air raids are becoming a regular occurrence for the young protagonist and her classmates as the allies close in.
2: Chapter 1. Imperial Japanese Army Continues Successful Attacks Against China. Showa 19, August 24, Thursday edition. Get under your desks now, Yakamura sensei shouted above the lonesome wail of the air raid siren. The teacher's voice did not waver as she barked this command. Her lips were pursed in a thin line, yet her hand had a slight tremor as she pointed toward the floor. My stomach lurched. I could hear my heart beating in my temples, my legs wobbled as if made of cooked ramen. I was torn between wanting sensei to review and grade my koseki project and wanting to run for cover. I froze. That means you too, Yakamura sensei nudged my elbow to move me away from her desk and back to my own. The familiar hum of the b songs, what we called the American B-29s that flew overhead, thundered in my ears. The engines were so loud that the floor vibrated under my feet. I covered my ears and scurried beneath my desk. I pulled my knees up to my chin. I stretched my uniform skirt down over my ankles and wrapped my arms around my knees, clasping my hands together. The ariad sirens blared at least twice a day now. You would think I would have been used to them, but my pulse still raced, even whenever the eerie siren sounded, followed by the rumbling of the b signs. And every time, I worried, will we actually get bombed? What if the school collapses? Will this desk actually protect me? Is my papa safe? How will I find him if a bomb hits us? Is Machiko as scared as I am in her classroom down the hall? Why do I always have to go to the bathroom when I'm nervous?
1: Hey listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners.
0: Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word, it may not be for Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. Oh, and speaking of audiobooks, and now that uh, it's already November and Christmas is around the corner, I'd like to uh, let you know that my three books in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy are now uh, on audiobooks, and you can find all three wherever you like to get your audiobooks, and also at Libro.fm. I'm really excited about the fact that I connected uh, with uh, an actor in uh, L.A. who is the narrator for this series. His name is uh, Bill A. Jones. He's best known for uh, his role as Rod Remington from Fox TV's Glee. But he's also appeared in a number of other uh, shows, Days of Our Lives, The King of Queens, The Drew Carey Show. And much, much more. He's really a funny guy, and he's uh, he's a singer as well. And he does justice to this series that's across between my cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street. You can listen to all three audiobooks uh, wherever you like to get your audiobooks, or you can get the first ebook uh, for free by signing up for our email list or pretty much on any retail site now. And the uh, other two books, if you want to listen on audiobook, you can get uh, those two for the price of one if you join Libra.fm with that promo code Charlotte Reader all one work. With that said, I've got a little bit more about the author, and then the interview, more readings uh, and the Writing Life segment, so hope you enjoy. Charlotte author Kathleen Birkinshaw is a Japanese-American and the daughter of a Hiroshima survivor whose award-winning book, The Last Cherry Blossom, distributed by Simon & Schuster's Scholastic, is the United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs resource for teachers and students. Kathleen enjoyed a 10 plus year career in healthcare management, unfortunately cut short by the onset of complex regional pain syndrome. Writing gives her an outlet for a daily struggle with chronic pain, and writing historical fiction satisfies her obsessive love of researching anything and everything. She's presented her mother's experience in Hiroshima at the United Nations, teachers' conferences, as well as middle and high schools for the past nine years. She's a wife, mom, and owner of a dog who thinks she's a kitchen ninja. Kathleen, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here.
1: Yeah, and that kitchen ninja, you know, it's it's been coming in and out of the kitchen, what we've been trying to record here, right?
2: If she didn't have the jingling collar on, she'd be much better at it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on your book and also this, uh, you know, that we're going to talk about the, the United Nations connection and everything that goes with it.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, so this is the story of the bombing of Hiroshima told from the perspective of a young girl. And um, your mother was uh, a young 12-year-old girl living in Hiroshima when the bomb was dropped on August 6, 1945. And I want to talk about that. But before we do, I want to talk about how you came to write this book, because you focus on this in the afterward of the book. uh, And it involves your daughter's involvement, uh, who's now 23 years old. Mm -hmm. But when she was in seventh grade, something happened that caused you to kind of start moving this story forward, right?
2: Yes. Um, Well, she came home from school that day, and she was really upset. She said, you know, we just finished the last chapter about World War II, and I overheard some kids talking about that really cool mushroom cloud picture. And she said, do you think you'd go in and talk to them about people who were under those clouds, like Grandma? And that really was the first time that I approached my mom so I could talk about it in public, because I had never done that before. Um, she had always kept it very close to her vest of, of what happened. She was very private, but um, I didn't even know she was from Hiroshima until I was about 11. She told everyone she was from Tokyo. And the reason being is that she didn't want to draw attention to herself when she came to the States. And the only way I found out was that summer in August, she had had horrible nightmares and she woke up screaming. And I remembered she had that the summer before. so. I kept pestering her about why August and then she finally told me that she was actually born in Hiroshima, but she lost her home and her family and friend on August 6 to the atomic bomb. And she said, I can't talk about it any more than that. It's still too painful. And then she said, please don't tell anyone. So that was something that I didn't really talk about. Even through high school, the first time I really got a feel of what she might have seen was when I read the book Hiroshima by John Hersey. And I remember being so shocked and and horrified of what she must have gone through. And I remember going to her with the book and she said, it was like that, but I still can't talk about it. And please don't tell your teacher I was there. I, I could not talk about it in public. So Nothing was said until I was in my early 30s. I was very sick. I was in the hospital for over a month. And when I came home, I needed someone to help take care of me because I couldn't walk well. And my daughter, who was four then, and it was my parents that came every day while my husband worked. And she started telling me more stories of her childhood, the happy stories, you know. And then I got the diagnosis of complex regional pain syndrome. And that's when I realized my career was going to be done Um, I didn't know how well I could then take care of my daughter. And dealing with that constant pain, I, I was very depressed and discouraged. And so my mom started talking about what happened on August 6th. And she did that because she said, I want to show you that I went through something so horrible, but I almost gave up. But I'm so glad that I didn't because I have you and I have my granddaughter, my daughter, Sarah. And she said, so you have that same blood, the same samurai blood running through you. So you can find a way to push through and to do something else with your life and to look for another option of what you can do. And that was really when I got most of the information. But nothing was really done until that seventh grade year.
1: Yeah. And so when your daughter comes home and says, I want you to come talk to my class, um. so you sort of grown up with a secret with your mother. You, you now have more information. Did you go to your mother and say, hey, I'm going to be talking about this? What do you think?
2: I did. I did because I really wanted her OK with that because it was her story. And she surprised me. I, th- I really thought she was going to say no. And she said yes, because the students in her class are all going to be around the same age that she was when the bomb dropped. And she felt that maybe they could relate to her better being that same age. And the big thing she also felt was that they are all going to be voters someday. And she was hoping that they could take away that message that nuclear weapons should never be used again.
1: Yeah. And so you started talking about it in seventh grade. You you talked about it to her classes as she as she grew up. Uh, This led to your daughter having an interest in the topic as well. It led to you planting a tree right mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. tell us tell us about the tree and how that works because your daughter ended up at unc wilmington and that this and that resulted in north carolina becoming the seventh state in the u.s to plant a tree from the one that survived in hiroshima
2: yes um there was a wonderful uh, entity called green legacy hiroshima and they're under unitar from the united nations and they collect seeds from trees that actually survived the atomic bombing and they grow saplings from them and they send them all over the world uh, as a sign of peace. And so when it was 2017 and I really wanted to do something uh, to kind of commemorate it. And I found Green Legacy Hiroshima and they were able to find a sapling for us in Georgia, so we didn't have to go too far to pick one up. And my daughter was minoring in Japanese, and so she was also involved in the Japan club at her college. And so she really spearheaded this whole fundraiser and working with her Japanese professor to raise funds for the planting of the sapling, for the upkeep of the sapling on the campus, uh, for a plaque, and then to have a, a big ceremony to kind of honor them. And one of the reasons though that we chose, UNC Wilmington to plant it was because it was the only school my mom got to tour with my daughter before she passed away. And it was very special for her that way. And it's near the education building, too. So they felt that, you know, when the students combine as a tree grows and it can give shade in the hot Carolina sun, you you can look down and read the plaque as to why they planted it and know that it's a sign of peace. So it was a wonderful way to kind of connect with students who are even in college age, not just in middle great, but to understand more about uh, what happened on that day and to honor all the uh, victims of World War II as well.
1: Yeah, and there'll be a picture in the show notes and also a link to that uh, Green Legacy website so that you can see uh, from whence these uh, seeds came. Um, you also got to go to the United Nations uh, to tell your story. Uh, talk about that visit and uh, you know what it was about and what that meant to your journey here.
2: Sure, Um, it was magical and very um, surreal. Uh, Back in 2018, I had been speaking with uh, the United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs Executive Director, John Ennis, and he had read my book and he really felt that it would be something that would be helpful to get out there because there really wasn't anything like the book where it's told from the 12 year old and with culture so they can get kind of a feel for it as well as what happens as a result of the bombing. So he named it an education resource for students and teachers of the United Nations. And that alone was something that was really exciting. And then a few months later, he mentioned that every fall they do uh, a teacher's conference. And And what they do is they discuss ways to bring nuclear disarmament into their curriculum. And he thought that that would be a really great way for me to to go, as well as to have my book featured and to do a book signing at the UN bookshop. And so he invited my husband and I to go to New York City in November. And it was so wonderful to meet other people who were so interested and so compassionate about wanting to rid the world of nuclear weapons and wanting to know my mom's story. And not only that, but the people who were also there with me, they were um, some of the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. As part of being um, the International Commission uh, Against Nuclear Weapons for ICANN when they did the treaty to ban nuclear weapons in 2017. So to be able to meet with these people and to think that they're also there to listen to my mom's story was was very surreal for me. And being able to talk to the teachers and hear their interest um, and just being able to honor my mom that day was just so amazing. And um, I'll carry that with me forever. And I, I think
1: she was probably smiling. That's great. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Japanese culture through this, uh, episode today. Cause you, you weave that into the, uh, into the story here, but just a little bit about your mother's experience. Uh, you have a main character in the book. Her name is, uh, Joya, uh, uh, J-O-Y-A, and uh, she's the protagonist in the book. She's 12 years old. Uh, was that the same age as your mother when she when the bomb was dropped?
2: Yes, she was 12 and a half about then when the bomb was dropped. And joya was a term of endearment, sort of like a young lady. Or um, And her real name, my mom's real name is Toshiko, but in the book it's Yuriko. She didn't want me to use her real first name. I don't know why, but that's what she
1: <laughs> So, So how, how much of this book, because it's a story, it's told almost like a young adult novel. Well, it is, in fact. Uh, But how much of this story is your mother's story?
2: Um, you know, there's quite a bit of it in there, uh, especially like the day of the bombing and the things that happened afterwards. That is all from what she has told me. And also there is a mystery in there about her family. And that is also true. The the pieces that I kind of considered the fiction part were the obviously like the conversations and then the the order of when the events happened. I mean, she had some family events and I had to kind of Fitted into that time period that I had to tell in the book. So that was part of that as well. Um, but the majority of it is really what she went through. Some of the names may have been changed. Um, but other than that, that was all pretty much her her story. And I just had to find a way to weave it together.
1: <laughs> yeah. And in doing some research for this episode, I noticed that the uh, when the bomb was dropped on really the center of Hiroshima, it, it had a blast zone of about a mile and a half. It just wiped out everything within that mile and a half circumference and uh, just leveled everything. And then your mother was just on the outskirts of that mile and a half. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yes, she was. And, and, you know, it, it was interesting because she always said she was further away from the center of town. But I think when you're younger, you don't really judge the the distance too well. And when we went to Hiroshima and we looked at a map and they showed us where her street was at the time and, and we noticed, and that's when it was so miraculous that you know she survived that by being so close to the epicenter. Um,
1: now, one of the with uh, well, the character, the main character in this book, uh, does get sick. I mean, gets some of the symptoms that come with radiation poisoning. Did your mother suffer some of that same thing?
2: Yes, she did. She did lose her hair, uh, her eyebrows, um, and she was very swollen for a while and sick to her stomach, but she ended up recovering from that eventually. And, um, you know, her hair grew back, but she did suffer from that. She also had some injuries because the the house that was, they were standing next to fell on top of her. So she also had some pieces of glass and wood that were still in her um, skull area that they couldn't get out um, that she had. So she was pretty lucky considering um, physical wise.
1: Your mother's only 12 years old at the time. uh, So she didn't really understand a lot about why there was a Fight what the war was about Um, over the years. uh, Did she share with you her thoughts on how things got to be where they were?
2: Yes, um, you know, she was born in 32, and in 1931, uh, Japan invaded Manchuria, so she really didn't know anything else but war. Um, as she got a little bit older, her papa did own a newspaper company, a local one in town, and so he did kind of discuss some things with her on that, although she didn't quite understand exactly why that type of bomb was dropped. She figured that, okay, so it was to end the war, but she didn't understand why something so um, extreme. But again, the people themselves didn't really understand what was happening outside of Japan because of the propaganda that was within their own country that they were telling them that they were winning more battles. And so they really didn't know what exactly was happening. And I think that was part of it, that they didn't know how much they were, the Japanese were doing on the other side. And, you know, my mom said that as she got older, she realized that, you know, war was hellish for both sides, but she said in both sides had humanity and she's right. They did. And I I think, you know, that's why I want to talk about this. I want to keep spreading her story and, you know, not for blame to remember what happened, but to remind people that there was. People under those clouds. There were children. They were, you know, they weren't all soldiers, as they like to say. Um, that was not true. Hiroshima was once a very big military port, but by 1945, they had been fighting for quite a long time. So a lot of the young men, they were off in the Pacific, or they had died. So there was a lot more elderly people. There were a few soldiers that were there. There were also some um, prisoners of war that were also there, and so but it was mostly older people and children. And I, and I think it's important to kind of humanize that other side of it, because otherwise it just becomes like a textbook with two paragraphs and you know ties it up in a bow and says that's how the war ended, but it's not that tidy. And I think it's important because students don't get a chance to really learn about that piece of it. And I think it helps them going forward.
1: Yeah, as I was reading this book, I was thinking back to the days when I was younger and we were practicing getting under desk in case there was a nuclear bomb, and it started me to think about what these young children were uh, feeling and thinking, in he was shame at the time, which you illustrate well in your opening read. Um, but I'd always been taught uh, that uh, the bomb was dropped and it saved, you know, half a million, a million, two million servicemen's lives and that kind of thing. Uh, there's a recent I think it's an Oliver Stone movie on the history of America on Netflix, where he talks about how those numbers have been exaggerated over time as in terms of the number of servicemen's lives that would have been saved and how Russia coming into the war,
0: mm-hmm. Japan
1: late, probably would have ended the war anyway without the bomb being dropped. And so um, a bit of a controversy there, apart from just dropping an atomic bomb that goes along with the story.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it was interesting. The more that I got to do some research and as the years go by, they're able to release more and more information uh, of looking at diaries of Truman, of some of the the main generals that were there. And, you know, Japan had talks of wanting to, um, you know, to to surrender. However, they wanted to keep their emperor. And at the time, the, the ally didn't want them to do that. But the Japanese also knew they had very little, uh, what do you call it, uh, materials, raw materials to make anything out of anymore. And so they were really at at a loss. And yes, it it saved some American lives. But again, I think the number was quite a bit more. The people may have been ready to fight, but they didn't really have anything to fight with had they come on land. And, um, you know, that the uh, the um, Okinawa battle really knocked out so many of their troops on the Japanese side that there weren't as many. And you you also have to realize too, the atomic bomb before that happened, there was other bombings and there was this huge firebomb that took place in Tokyo in March of 45. And that pretty much leveled a good amount of the city. And so um, then there was one in Kure, And so there was quite a lot that was hitting all of those ports and they weren't able to uh, do very much to kind of protect it anymore. So It really sounds more like from the the more recent things they've put out there is that the um, U.S. did not want to have Russia coming in. They would rather have the Japanese instead of the Russians there to overtake it. So and the Japanese also didn't want to be overtaken by Russia as well. So I think it was kind of like a, a meeting in the middle of something but that didn't happen until after the bombing. And so there are various theories of why they think the bomb was dropped. And, you know, and, and I, I look at those, but I think the main thing, you know, is they dropped them. And we now know what could happen and the damage that it can bring. So we should not have them ever again. I, I think to me now, you know, When I talk to students and we show the damage that was done, I have some slides that show how much was taken down on my mother's street and um, the type of burns and the amount of people that died. And it was all done by a bomb that had the strength of 15,000 tons of TNT. So today, if you look in our arsenal in the US, we have the largest nuclear weapon we have is has 1.2 million tons of TNT of damage, and I think that's why it's just so important to realize what happened over there and how awful that it could then be devastating here, and even if it didn't happen to the United States itself, if it happened someplace else, there would still be so much smoke in the stratosphere that it blocks, you know, 7 to 10 percent of the Earth's sunlight around the world, so it's not just, we don't, we're not the only ones anymore, and uh, so it's more important now, I think. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I think there may have been some naivete at the time about whether other nations would catch up with the U.S. and have their own nuclear arsenal and some desire perhaps by the U.S. to uh, show the world that it had this power and show Russia in particular because they were concerned about, you know, communism expanding after World War II. And then when Russia started into Manchuria, and looked like it was going to, uh, you know, Pummel Japan, you know, they, they jumped in with the bomb, but that's, we could talk all day about that. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so let's do something else. T- taking off the lead of your show, uh, read of your book here, the uh, which is The Last Cherry Blossom, talk about the importance of the cherry blossom in Japanese culture
2: the cherry blossoms have always very been very, very important. And even these days, you can tell they, they have this whole planning of the cherry blossom season and they take very careful to figure out what day are they going to start in the Southern end of the country and as they move up North. Um, and when my mom was growing up, That was her favorite time of year, is to do the cherry blossom viewing. And it also was the very last time her entire family was together in 1945, was for the Cherry Blossom Festival. So to her, it had a lot of significance. And, you know, in addition to that, um, when the bomb was dropped, they felt that nothing could grow there now within five to ten years However, that following spring, the cherry blossoms bloomed. I mean, not all of them, but the trees that were left actually had blooms on them. And I really feel that that's like showing how the Japanese people had that uh, tenacity and they wanted to persevere and try to move forward. They, of course, didn't like what happened in the war, but they had been doing it for so long. They just wanted to try to move their lives forward and to have the strength and the fortitude to try to push through something so horrific um you know to me that was showing in the cherry blossoms and in the beauty and the fragility and you know how things can be better um the following year so
1: yeah we're going to bring that into the show here before we're done but first let's uh let's talk about the uh father daughter relationship you got to read here starting in uh, chapter six uh and uh the, the father in this story like your mother's father was in journalism ran a newspaper uh And now the young girl's wondering, could Japan really lose this war? So perhaps you could pick it up with that read and we'll talk a little bit more. Sure.
2: Is something wrong, Papa? You are so quiet tonight, I finally asked in barely a whisper. He sighed. Joya, some days I am discouraged by the news I print about the war. But Japan is winning the war. How can that be discouraging? I swiveled my body so he could brush the other section of my hair. A few years ago, I believed we were winning, but now I am not so sure, Papa said solemnly. I felt a chill travel up my spine to the nape of my neck. Victories were reported daily at school. I never thought that losing the war was even possible. I turned to face Papa and stammered as I asked, so Japan could lose? He pushed the bangs out of my eyes and said, we have been fighting for seven long years. Our army supplies have been drained. He helped twist me back around and continued to brush my hair. What do you mean, Papa? Well, for one thing, we need to build more planes, but have no metal to do that with. I knew that we had no metal to use at school, but I hadn't thought the government could have also had a shortage that would stop them from manufacturing planes. Is that why Matsusan came by yesterday to collect whatever spare metal we had laying around the house? I did not know she had come yesterday. Who did she speak with? Aunt Kimiko, she told Matsu-san to stop by once you were at home. Well, I will deal with Matsu-san later. War is not something we need to keep discussing, Joya. I want to hear about your day. He finished wrapping my hair in a big towel. We both took a seat on the wicker bench and put our feet up on the table. My nerves would not be subdued. It frightened me to think our country could be on the losing side of the war. Before I could stop myself, I asked, Papa, what would happen to us if Japan lost the war? I will keep my family safe at all costs. Know this, Joya. You are my life, and I will give mine to save yours. Papa, do not talk that way. I do not want to be here if you are not. I felt tears building in my eyes and leaned my head to rest on Papa's shoulder, squeezing his hand. He squeezed back and said, But that is how life is, Yuriko chan. In our lives, we must experience both beginnings as well as endings. It is like the season changing after the last cherry
1: blossom falls. And that, that's the theme that you carry through the book that with the cherry blossoms uh, falling and a new season starting and you know Hiroshima coming and the tree that survives and so forth. You did a good job, I thought, uh, Kathleen, weaving in to the story of a young girl, the different cultural aspects of life in Japan. And you didn't grow up there, you only heard this. So even though you are Japanese heritage, this was a little bit foreign to you when you were doing your own research, right?
2: Absolutely. Um, my mom pretty much what she called it Americanized our home when I was growing up. So she really didn't have a lot of Japanese things around. Occasionally, she would make some Japanese food. She would sing Japanese songs to me um, and tell me some folk tales in English that she loved in Japan. But um, there really wasn't anything of that. So I never learned to speak Japanese. She didn't really do any of the um, the holidays uh, in Japan. So it really wasn't until well, when my daughter was first born, I tried to learn some of them. But it was really to know more of the culture. It all came by trying to research for the book, which I'm very glad because the stuff that I learned meant a difference to me personally, not just to be able to use in the book. And I'm really glad because I feel that it kind of enhanced for people to kind of get a feel of, okay, this is how their life was during the war. And they could see similarities, they could see some differences, but I think it it gives them a a nice peek into um, the the culture as well as the political mindset at that time as well.
1: Yeah, we're going to dive into that culture a little bit more after the break here, including uh, how young men, almost boys, were told to go die for the emperor and uh, what that meant. But uh, before that, I just want a couple of facts. You put this in the back of your book, the statistics. The pre-war population of Hiroshima was 350,000 people, and 80,000 people died immediately or within hours of the bomb being dropped. And another 150,000 people died within the next five years. And it had a strength, the bomb did, of 20,000 tons of TNT. Here's a sobering fact. The nuclear warheads in America as of 2014 have the strength of 455,000 tons of TNT. So given these statistics, I mean, more than uh, two-thirds of the population of Hiroshima was killed by this bomb.
2: Yes. And if you look further down the line from five years, the first five years, there was a lot more people that would end up dying um, as a result from it. So it wiped out so quickly. um, You figure in an instant, 80,000 people were gone.
1: And very few uh, military uh, personnel or locations were involved in that uh, uh, disaster. All right. So on that sobering note, uh, we're going to take a short short break here. And then when we come back, we're going to dive into some of the culture. We're going to talk about the day of the bombing. We're going to do the writing life segment. And we got one final read. So, hey, please stay with us, listeners. Thank you. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast. Uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit arts center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.com. Dot org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Riders Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. I uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and uh they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, CharlotteWritersClub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those, many online classes, uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in the North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. Been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors, and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, uh, I'm back with Kathleen Birkenshaw. She's the author of *The Last Cherry Blossom*. It's a uh, it's a young adult uh, novel for uh, children who are trying to understand the horror of the uh, of what happened uh, in August of 1945 when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And now we got a little reading that uh, gets into some of the culture. Um, Kathleen, anything you want to say to set up this reading?
2: Uh, well, this takes place where they had these uh, events called Chohei Parties. And they were basically whenever someone was conscripted and told to fight for the Emperor, they would have a little get together so people could go um, to say, you know, goodbye to them and to wish them luck, as well as um, be able to take them off to the train and kind of be with them through all of that. So it was a quite a often a, a response that happened in her town that she lived in and her papa actually had some extra money and he used his extra rations so that he could then help them have those parties to celebrate so they could send the men off to. Um, and and one just thing I'd like to say about that is a lot of times uh, for the young men, they didn't always want to go. Um, they were, they sometimes were uh, threatened that something would happen to their parents if they didn't go. Um, they also didn't all choose to sign up to do the kamikaze bombing, as um, they like to show in, in, in a lot of movies. A lot of that is they were just very scared, young boys who were told to do what they needed to do. And then sometimes to protect their family. And the military was very mean to their own people in Japan as well. So... Um,
1: so before you start, I'm, I'm just curious about one thing, because there was this deification of the emperor in Japan, that uh, he was like a god, that he didn't speak publicly, that maybe the first time they heard him speak was you know, after the bomb was dropped, uh, Hiroshima. So what was your mother's understanding of the emperor both before and after Hiroshima?
2: Well, before, she believed, like everybody else did, that he was a deity and, you know, the, the reverence that they had for him, they could look upon his picture uh, when they had the school assemblies in the morning. Um, and then she said she was just very confused when after the war they said that wasn't true anymore, that he was just a man and he'd be the emperor, but he wouldn't, he wasn't what they originally thought. And she didn't quite get that because it was very hard to go from what you've been taught for 12 years then all of a sudden, okay, so that's not true anymore. Um, and she said it just made her doubt a lot of other things in her childhood of what they would talk about for the war. And that's when she started to find out more about, you know, what was really happening and why men signed up to go to war and how some of them had to leave. And, and I think for her, it was just kind of a, a discovery that she didn't expect to make. And she, it really kind of shook her because she didn't know who to believe or what to believe afterwards. I think it really set her to be on the fence for a lot of that. And did they really fight for something that was worth it? You
1: know, so. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's uh, if you would, read this uh, little section, and we'll talk about it.
2: As we approached the yard, I noticed a photographer taking a picture of Watanabe-san and her son, Jiro, under the shade of the ginkgo tree. I had learned at the first chohei party I'd attended that this last family portrait was taken in case the son died while fighting for Japan. Judo san looks much older in his army uniform than he did when he was a mechanic, covered in grease stains. Judo-san actually looks quite handsome, Machiko said, her cheeks flushing a bit. I suppose, at least with the military haircut, his hair is out of his eyes. He would look better if he was smiling, though. His mother is not smiling either. Anyone can see by her swollen red eyes that she's been crying. My heart breaks for her, Machiko let out a small sigh. Mine does too. You know, I would never stop crying if Papa had to leave and fight in the war. And poor Watanabe-san, she's already lost her husband in the war, and now her only son is leaving too. Aunt Kimiko told me that some parents keep locks of their son's hair, so if a son dies in battle and his body cannot be returned, the family has something to bury. Do you think Watanabe-san did that too? I wanted to think of Judo's hair getting in his eyes instead of in a box in the ground." Machiko and I walked over to the rising sun flag, arranged on the table where the mochi cakes sat earlier. We wrote our names and gambatte kudasai on the flag. There were so many good luck wishes, we barely had enough space to leave our own. The older men from the Veterans Association entered the yard wearing the Army's khaki uniforms. Their arrival signaled it was time for the final toast. Everyone became quiet. One of the veterans took his cup of sake, raised it in the air and said, "Fanzai." From there, we went to the covered temizuya to purify ourselves by rinsing our hands and mouths using the wooden ladle and water which was held in the stone basin. We climbed the stairs to the hall of worship's altar. watanabe rang the bell to let the deities know we were there and all bowed twice. We prayed silently for jiro sans safe return clapped twice and gave a final bow. We continued on to the train station nearby, waving our many rising sun flags, which were passed out at the party and sang the patriotic march. Once we were at the station, we lined up along the tracks. Judosan san stood on the step of the train and gave his farewell speech. I believe that to do battle and go to his death for his country is the dearest wish of every Japanese man. I will do my duty with no thoughts of coming back alive. Goodbye, everyone. Everyone applauded, except Machiko and me. In fact, Machiko gasped. Even though Jiro san may have meant it, and it wasn't just saying it because he had to, we couldn't bring ourselves to applaud such an eerie and dark sentiment. The veterans began chanting, and we automatically joined in. Jiro san Banzai! Jiro san Banzai! Jiro san Banzai! I looked over at Machiko again. Her eyes were wet, and she looked pale, as did Watanabe-san.
1: So from the perspective of these uh, young girls, they're seeing a ceremony unfold that uh, was a top down, I assume, uh, way to get uh, young boys men uh, into battle and to give their lives, uh, which was happening frequently at the end of the war with the kamikaze planes. And in fact, he could have been one of them uh, designated to fly a plane into one of the battleships that was, you know, in the Pacific at that time. So. the, the religion you talk about here, the deities, where they stopped, and uh, the worship altar. Talk about that just a second. What, what was the the belief system um, in Japan?
2: This is um, the, the deities and the shrine they went to is based on the Shinto religion. And it's not really, a religion is not really the right word for it. I think it's a word that the Americans kind of put to it. But in Japan, they see that everything has a spirit in it. Um, and there are certain trees, certain areas where the deities are even um, more so there. Uh, One of the famous shrines is the uh, Shrine Yaskuni, and that place is uh, where a lot of the war memorials are, and a lot of the soldiers are honored there. Uh, In in the occupation time, they wanted to close that shrine because of that, because they didn't want any signs of militarism to pop up again, Um, but by going there uh, you see that not only with the religion piece of it, but they also value all of the young men that went to war. They even have a section in the museum in that shrine that shows the letters that young boys wrote home before they were about to get onto the plane to do that. And it really then humanizes them as well. They, they not, Some probably had some hate or, or wanted to do what they did, but not all of them did. And it really gives you a chance to look into their heart and their fear of what they had to do. But doing it because it was their duty. Uh, and, and I think that by going to the shrine and you kind of feel that the, my mom said like the spirit of them wanting to fight for their country, the spirit of their love for their family. She says, you can feel it there as well. So it's, it's a sense of worship, but it's not in the worship like we would think of a religion, um, going to church and um, having that particular thing. It's very different. Um, it's a lot more nature-based than what we would have.
1: Which ties in well to the cherry blossom. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, exactly. exactly.
1: Yeah. So we've come to the part of the show where we've got a reading um, that, re- that actually illustrates what happened on this awful day from the perspective of, a, of a, the 12-year-old protagonist uh, in this book. And uh, it's uh, it's pretty descriptive and kind of speaks for itself. But just set us up and orient us, uh, Kathleen, where uh, this young girl is at the time that sure. this is happening.
2: Sure. Um, August 6th fell on a Monday. Uh, So that weekend, my mother was not feeling well. And so her papa said she could stay home on Monday and join the rest of her students in class on uh, Tuesday. So that's why she was home that day. Um, her friend Machiko happened to be outside and she was working at a plane factory. So she was on a different schedule every other day. And so my mom wanted to make sure that she got to go see her friend. So in this, you see Yuriko wanting to go and talk to her friend because they hadn't seen each other in a long time. Uh, for a few months, my mom and um, some of the family members, the women were sent off to the country for a while, but then they finally came home right before August 6th. So um, that puts her seeing Machiko for the first time at this morning. Machiko turned around. Good morning, Yuriko. She gave me a hug. I'm so happy to see you. It's been a long two months without you. But aren't you supposed to be going back to the country? I attempted to catch my breath. Papa decided Sumio is as stubborn as he is and that we don't have to go back. Just then, sons flew overhead. We both looked up at the sky. There was no siren blaring. A voice from the loudspeaker perched on a pole at the front of the house announced it was only a weather plane, and weather planes were not a threat, as they had never been used in an attack. After the announcement, I began to speak again. Machiko, can we listen to some jazz this morning before you go to work? The deafening hum of a low flying plane drowned out Machiko's reply. This time a siren sounded, the hair lifted on the back of my neck, an ear-shattering popping noise, an intense burst of white light. The ground trembled and opened beneath us as if to swallow us whole. Machiko and I clung to each other and screamed. Darkness. I opened my eyes and immediately began to cough. I wiped away dirt and rocks from inside my mouth and on my face My head pounded as if someone had beaten it like a taiko drum. Reaching up, I touched my head and felt a lump. I looked down at my hand to see if it was bleeding, but it was too dark to see anything. How much time had passed? Was I dead? What had happened? Was it an earthquake? I tried to piece things together. I heard a plane engine, but it was a weather plane. Wait, there was a second plane. There was a siren. That plane must have dropped a bomb. I was talking with someone. Was it Sumio? "'No, it was Machiko. Machiko, Machiko, are you all right?' I called out into the darkness. "'Yuriko, Yuriko.' Her voice was so faint. It was as if she was whispering. "'Help me, Yuriko.' Some rocks shifted, and I heard Machiko groan. "'Are you hurt?' I called, still unable to see where she was. "'I can't move, Yuriko.' Machiko's teeth clicked together in between her words. "'It's so very cold.' She began to cry. I am coming, I will find you, please don't cry. I tried to push away the wood and dirt surrounding me. Keep talking to me so I can follow your voice. I heard no reply. Droplets of sweat stung my eyes. My heart was racing and my hands clawed at the debris, hoping the next rock I removed would reveal my best friend. Machiko, I'm going to find you and soon we will be in your room listening to some jazz. I continued to talk, hoping to calm her, but it was more to calm myself I kept talking to her. That meant she was still alive and that I would find her. My fingers throbbed. I tried to open my hands wider to rip away more rocks with each swipe. Every time I did, I scraped against jagged edges. Moisture oozed down my hand. I knew it must be blood, even if I could not see it. I called out to her again. Machiko, I need to rest for a few minutes. I will dig some more. I just need to rest my hands. I closed my eyes and my cheeks were wet. Not from blood, but from tears. My whole body shivered.
1: Now, Kathleen, I believe earlier you said that um, some of the parts of this book, including what happened on the day of the bombing, uh, did come from your mother's life story. So, she did lose a friend uh, during the during the bombing.
2: Yes, she did. They never recovered her from the rubble in the house.
1: And, and what happened to your mother's family? You get you s- provided some pictures. We're going to put in the show notes of. Uh, What looked like her as a young girl with some uh, people, which I assume was her family. And uh, what what happened to her family?
2: Um, Well, that day uh, when her house was destroyed, her stepmother, Sumio, was still alive. um, And they went to look for her papa. And her papa was also, he died later that day. So she really had no home to go to at that point. Um, There was nothing that they could save because everything was just burned. Uh, So that meant even things like my mom said, you know, papers and and pictures. And that's why the pictures that you'll have are all of her probably between the ages of three and five. Um, And the only reason she had those was because they were in a country house that wasn't damaged. But any of her more older pictures were gone. So she only has about five pictures of her own from her childhood. Uh, So, and she later would lose other members in her family um, within the next couple of years. And um, by the time at the end of the book, uh, she had lost just about everyone. except for her aunt Kimiko was still alive at that time, and her cousin Genji was still alive at that time. But as far as she knew, she wasn't going to be seeing them again because they moved away to another um, family member's home. So um, she was pretty much stuck going to a school where she lived at for a while in a dormitory. Uh, And then she ended up meeting her, um, another relative, and then she went to Tokyo with him. So she really didn't stay around Hiroshima much more than about a year uh, afterwards.
1: Did you ever ask your mother how she coped with this experience over the course of her life?
2: Um, She didn't think she coped with it very well. She exhibited a lot of signs of what we now know as PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, But they didn't really talk about it then. They didn't have a name for it then. So when she was trying to deal with the memory, she had a lot of guilt because she was the only one still alive. Um, out of her family and she didn't know if she could trust people again and she also was kind of very, she tempted fate a lot because she didn't understand why she was still alive so she would put herself in very dangerous situations um, like being on a train track and waiting until it gets there before she rolls off. That was just some of the ways that she felt like I shouldn't be here so I'm just going to keep testing it. Uh, She would have a lot of depression uh, she would close herself off. And I, I think back to my childhood growing up, it made a lot more sense as I started to read more and research about this because she would have weeks where she would want to just sit in the dark or she had um, some anger issues, anger management. And I never quite understood how that all pieced together. But now I can see why, because she was still trying to to deal with it in some way. Um, she didn't really believe in going to therapists. It was, you know, she was too proud. She didn't need to. She did try to go to one once though. And they mentioned um, that, well, they mentioned Pearl Harbor. So that's why Hiroshima was, um, you know, not that it should have happened, but, you know, even things out, so to speak. And my mom was of course, very upset with that. And, you know, one should not say, well, because of one, the other should have happened. They were both horrible. So I think she just decided she wasn't going to talk about it. And that's why she never said anything um, to most people, even for most of her life.
1: That doesn't sound like a very good technique to me for a therapist to use to uh, work with someone who's suffered trauma.
2: No, but that was years and years ago. So, you know, it, it all depends. Maybe they had someone in the war that they lost. I mean, there, there could be, you know, there, there was a lot of different feelings back then when she first came to the States. Um lot of prejudice still a lot of racial slurs that she had to deal with which is why i think she just said tokyo because it was easier
1: did you experience any of that growing up
2: yes um you know my mom said she americanized the house so that i wouldn't go through it but as a child i definitely looked very asian um and I was one of the oh gosh, we didn't have any Asian children in my class until like fourth grade. So in elementary school, I pretty much stood out uh, in our neighborhood. There weren't any Asian people, let alone any Japanese people. So my mom really didn't have any of that. And because I stood out, they would say, slurs to me. And and sometimes what they would say, which I didn't understand then, was to go back to my own country. And I'm thinking I was born here. I didn't know what they meant by that. And my mother would get very upset. So it, it um, it was still very difficult to do that. And even in high school, there were some Asian people, but there wasn't really anyone um, that, that I could have, so there were no Japanese people, there was nothing that my mom really had. So she didn't have a lot of people around. And that's why I don't think I really learned about my culture until later.
1: Well, it just goes to show given modern day politics that some things haven't changed <laughs> and, uh, the ignorance has not been eradicated just yet. So, uh,
2: sadly, yes. Mm.
1: Well, let's talk about the writing life real quick here. Um, you know, you had several options when you were thinking about writing this book. Um, you could have written, a uh, know, sort of a biograph- biographical sketch of your mother, sort of a memoir type book. You chose to write it as a novel instead. Talk about uh, that choice and how you ended up where you did.
2: Well, the, the first time when I decided it was going to be more of a, a novel and for the middle grade or YA group was um, after a teacher had asked me about something for curriculum. And then, you know, I realized they didn't have very much to talk about the Pacific side, but also, you know, when I told my mom, and she was shocked. She really didn't think anybody would care about a story about a little girl in Hiroshima. And she had sent me a picture, which is in the book, of her and her papa. And so when I saw that, that's when I decided, I'm not gonna start at the bomb and then go forward. I wanna talk about months before. And uh, I figured in that way, they could really feel some empathy towards the character. They could understand that you know, the, the children in Japan they love their families. They love their friends. They worry what could happen, and they wished for peace. And that could also show that that was the same thing that the Allied children were going with. And I wanted to bring it to the younger student group, one, because my mom was that age, um, but also to, so they could see it through her eyes of what was happening. And, and, and that's why I also chose first person. Originally, my agent wanted me to go third person, but I I had to go back and forth a while to show that the first person would be better. And, and I think, cause it takes them into it more and they remember more of it. And even today, you know, I really feel that reading a book, even though it's 75 years later, you know, it really does show that the ones that we may think are different, the one that we think don't belong or the ones that we think are our enemy, they are not so different from us. I mean, time can pass, you know, technology will change, but the need for human connection through emotions That's timeless. And I think that if we could, the more that we can be reminded of this and to show the empathy, I'm convinced in that way, instead of always looking at the statistics of nuclear war, which are important and the cost of it. But if they find out that what happened happened to people and that no family should have to go through that again, you know, I really think in that way, we're not at the risk of repeating the same horrific mistakes over and over.
1: You were writing this book, and you you know that your mother's experienced uh, what she's experienced. Did you feel any pressure in making sure that you got this story right and having done all the edits and what you've done now are you are you proud of what you ended up with? Yeah.
2: Uh, Yes, my mom did get to read the first couple of drafts before um, she had passed away. And so she was my first worst critic, because she would then tell me, well, no, it really didn't happen that way, or I wouldn't really write that, or, you know, I I wasn't that nice, so you might know certain things. (laughs) (laughs) so that was really interesting um and I learned a lot more about her as a child which is interesting because you don't always think of your parents being young you know it's like boom you popped into their life and that's when they started to exist and so to hear the way she was as a child was, was very interesting um and so I, I it was just very um enlightening i think to be able to to feel what she might have felt or what she was discussing you know at that time of how she was different and and then as we moved forward with the book you know we also had to worry about by putting in the culture, I wanted to show, you know, with the Japanese language, there's a very polite form and there's an impolite form. And I wanted to show that somehow because between an adult and a child, there'll be a different type of speech and different type of speech if the friend is talking to it, you know, it's talking to a friend. And so the best way we thought to do this without it being too stilted, um, because the Japanese never use contractions. That's just not of their language at all so if they were speaking to an adult or an adult was speaking to them then we would do um, no contraction but when a lot of the times when yuriko is just doing the narrating or she's talking to her friends we have contractions in there to kind of show that difference of it as well um so i thought that that was interesting being able to kind of put all those pieces together, and at the end, you know, my editors were really great. Um, my my agent first, we went through a couple of run-throughs before she submitted it, and um, but then when I got to my editors, they were really good at trying to say, okay, well, you can you can draw more out of her as a character with emotions, and it really pushed me to pretend that it was me being twelve and seeing what she saw and how I would have felt if it was my parents or my friend. And I just remember it was hard to go there because if I was writing on those chapters, I had to take like a week or so off from it at all because it was so emotionally draining. I, I just, I was so sad. And and um, so I had to do something totally different for a whole other week or so, and then I could get back to it. But when we finally came at the end, I have to say that, um, you know, you're always your own worst critic of your writing, but I'm very happy that they pushed me to that because it is much better from when it first started, uh, especially when I just had like a couple of chapters and I learned so much in the years that it took to write the book, um, to get it from where it first started as just a couple pages of a a speech that I would give. Um, And along the way, as I was writing my chapters, I would try them out with schools when I would discuss the day of what happened that day, I would read to them some of what I had written. So it was kind of a neat way to get feedback too from students as I was doing that as well.
1: So Kathleen, how is writing this book since you and your family are so tied up in it, how has it shaped your own journey?
2: It's been very interesting. Um, You know, I've taken a cause for nuclear weapons and to be able to, tell my mother's story and my daughter has also taken that piece of as she did with with the fundraising and you know now that she's getting older she's trying to get involved with schools and and for the 75th coming up and it's amazing of where it has come i thought it was just going to be a story so i could tell them what happened to my mom but it's taken on legs and it's just been able to talk to people and students around the world about this little girl in hiroshima but how it might mean to them today Um, has been something I would not have thought for it to happen. I mean, I, I enjoy speaking with students and to know that then I've been speaking with a lot more Uh, it it just it wasn't where I thought it was going to go it's much better um, but I just couldn't have imagined that it would take me to that spot Um, I'm just you know my mom said you know a little girl in Hiroshima but look at where it is and I think she would be very amazed to see where it is now and and what it's done and you know because she did pass away about a year before the book came out so she knew it was going to be published I had just gotten my contract like about four weeks before that so she knew Um, and I remember remember the first thing she said was, um, you know, it honors her papa. And I was, but I was honoring her too. And then she said to me, she said, for the first time, I know why I survived. And she said, I couldn't tell my story, but you can do it for me. And that was just, to hear that and her thoughts about that, it just, it made everything so much more um, a part of me and a journey that I was happy to be on. For her, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, that's 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 a great tribute to your mother, to her, to her papa. What you've been doing to kind of get the word out and to continue to keep the story alive. You know, keeping stories alive is a very important thing to do because people sometimes forget. And uh, but your mother. Um, having read the book here toward the end of the book, she is uh, really suffering emotionally uh, as you would expect. And uh, she's not sure she wants to continue her life. And uh, there's a little scene here that you're going to read that's going to bring us to a close that uh, brings back the cherry blossoms into the story. I think it's a good way for us to, to bring this episode to, uh, to an end. Uh, uh, Could you read that for us?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to. I caught a glimpse of one of the last cherry blossoms as it fell from the tree. How easy it would be to jump off the same bridge that Papa and I crossed to visit Mama's grave, to simply float away like that last blossom of the season. My reasons for living have been ripped away and reduced to ashes by an atomic bomb. As I watched the cherry blossom float down the river, the ripples turned into my Papa's face. I heard his voice recounting his samurai stories. You should have pride because of your ancestry. No one can ever take that from you. Family and honor are very important. You must never forget that. I felt his kiss on my forehead, which he always gave at the end of his stories. At that moment, I became aware of the tingling bumps that covered me. It was as if I were a young child again, dressed in pajamas after my bath, and had stepped out into the cooler air of our veranda for evening story time. But would it honor my Papa if I ended my life after he took such pains to give me a good life and a good name? I wish that this war never had happened. I would like to go back to being a little girl again when all I needed to feel safe was his embrace. The sun was lower in the sky. I brought my right and then my left leg back onto solid ground. My heart pounded and my face flushed. I looked at the water one last time. Papa, I am going to make you proud of me. I will never forget you, and will honor you always in my heart. You will never be replaced, Papa. I love you.
1: Now, Kathleen, you've read from this book a number of times. Um, each time you read it, do you, do, does it does it is, it, is it an emotional experience for you?
2: It is, especially when I read the section um, about her papa when when she sees him pass away. Um, I hear her voice and she'd cry every single time when she talked about it, like it was happening in front of her all over again. And she was not one to cry. So that just, it hits me so much um, of, of what she felt. And um, it's very special to me to, to have that. It reminds me of the connection that we have together that she was willing you know, to, to share and entrust me with her story and her heart. So it's, it's, it means a lot to me.
1: Well, Kathleen, you've done great work with this book. You've brought, uh, you've kept this story alive. You've you've honored your parents uh, through this. Um, and uh, so, what's next? Where are we going next with this? Are you, you've been to the United Nations? <laughs>
2: Um, Well, I've been very fortunate and invited to be able to do a few virtual events for the 75th
1: anniversary
2: of the atomic bombing in August. And so it's been a way, in a sense, you know, with us not being able to travel, I'm able to participate in events that will be in Hiroshima, in New York City, in Washington, D.C., Um, where I wouldn't normally have had an opportunity to physically visit each one of those. So it'll be an honor to talk about her there and doing a program with um, the Japanese American National Museum in California. They now have an exhibit there about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and atomic bombing. So I'll be doing that with a fellow uh, author who has, both parents were uh, hibakusha, Hiroshima survivors. Uh, Her name is Naomi Hirahara. I don't know if you, um, she does a mystery series um, that's based on a character who's based on her father who was in Hiroshima and she talks about that in her book so being able to combine with this other author that I've read her books before and that you know she calls us hibakusha sisters because we both have dealt with a lot and to be able to do that with the Japanese American um, museum is a wonderful wonderful thing and in the meantime as after I'm doing some of this it'll also be I'm working on the sequel so that's like four years later so it talks about her PTSD, it talks about um, the occupation years and the cover-ups of the atomic bombing and what could be said and what couldn't. Um, so I've been working on the research for that, which takes me a while because I'm kind of particular.
1: <laughs> okay, so by the time this episode comes out in the fall, you have done a lot of those things that you just talked about and uh, you'll be further along in that sequel. So uh, uh listeners you can uh, find out more about uh, kathleen and her book and there's links to websites and some photographs as well in the show notes so uh check those out at com. kathleen thanks so much for uh being on the show
2: you're welcome and thanks so much for having me it was wonderful to speak to
0: you thank you
1: well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to their written words.
0: Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before
1: then, be on the lookout for another under-the-covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but
0: quicker and
1: sometimes away from the studio.
0: Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
1: And if you're inclined to help us, help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter.
0: You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com.
1: And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.
0: Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina, now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at OrthoCarolina.com. OrthoCarolina, you improved.